man, what a beautiful song. Goodness, God of revival. Uh, and it's good to see you this morning. Uh, I just want to let you know, if you're like, kind of new to the church, uh, we are finishing a series of talks called Your Next Move. And uh, we've been talking about that there's every day that we're facing decisions, and every day those decisions really point our life into a direction. So when we're talking about decisions, it's not just a kind of one of these messages where like, okay, make better decisions. There's a, so much that's hanging in the balance of our decisions. First of all, because a series of your decisions and my decisions point to a direction, so our future is in the balance. And not only is our future in the balance, but the people that love us, so that in the circle, uh, you know, kind of in the gravitational pull of our, of our life, they, uh, they're affected by our decisions. So it's no wonder that when you're facing a big decision, whether financially, relationally, uh, career-wise, that you feel this pressure because you're feeling the weight of everything that I'm talking about, you feel the weight that you're, you're just like, I know that I'm not supposed to go through life and just willy-nilly and just kind of going through there, but my decisions have consequences. My decisions have a direction. And not just the pressure of the weight of that, but there's emotion involved in that. Have you ever tried to make a decision and you were just emotionally involved? I mean, and it's like, I don't, have, I mean, that's good aware, self-awareness when you go, I, I'm not allowed to make a decision right now because I'm too emotional in this moment. I need to pause. You know, that's why you should never buy something when it's late at night. Because uh, then you'll find yourself with four Snuggies. Uh, you remember the Snuggies? Okay, uh, I'm not the only one. You know, emotionally, like, you know what? I could use a Snuggie right now. And, and then you're like, what am I going to do with the blanket that I sleeves? I just don't get it. Uh, but emotions, emotions can kind of uh, can play a part in building that pressure and not just our emotions, but I think influences. Everyone's got an opinion. You ask people about, what do you think I should do? There's going to be a thousand different opinions. So that's why we just said, you know what? Let's do a series to help us make wise decisions. And so as you consider your next move, we want you to ask a few really key questions. And the first is maybe the, leg, the, the integrity question, are you being honest with yourself? I, I, I love this, this thought, is that you'll never get to where you want to be until you're honest about where you currently are. I mean, this is the first step. If you are in a, a spot where you feel like you need to make a recovery, this is the first step. If, if you're in a place where you're wanting to make a course change, that starts with here about being an honest assessment about where you are. And if, if you're thinking about making some decisions, considering your next move, think about the second question, the legacy question, which is what story do I want to tell? You know, when you write your story, and this is a crazy thought, that you write your story one decision at a time. I'm writing my story, you're writing your story as we speak, right now. And the great thing is, you may not have uh, welcomed these circumstances, you may not engineer these circumstances, but you can always be in control of your response to those circumstances. And that response is your story to tell. 
And so as you consider your next move, think, consider the next question, the conscience question. Is there attention that deserves my attention? That when you're looking at um, your decisions and you're weighing your options and all of a sudden there's some tension around some of those options, that's not the time to ignore, but that's t- the time to lean in because it could be a God moment. God could be trying to guide you in that moment to say, hold on there. There's a red flag on the play. Pause and consider and maybe prayerfully, this the time to really pray and lean into that. Say, God, why am I feeling tension in this moment? What, what is there? Am I, is there something I need to consider? And then last week, uh, if, as you're considering your next move, we're talking about the maturity question. What is the wise thing to do in light of my past experiences, in light of my current circumstances, in light of my future hopes and dreams? What's the wise thing for me to do? It's a great question because we've all thought about this. A decision can be not wrong and not wise all at the same time, right? Now, I love about these questions because these questions are clarifying and terrifying. You know why they're terrifying? Because if we actually ask these questions, we most of the time know the answer to those questions, We don't need someone to tell us. We know the answer. And that's why it's so clarifying and so terrifying. But today, we're going to be probably looking at the most terrifying question of them all as we wrap up. Are you ready for the most terrifying question of it all? Uh, Some are like, well, thank you for bringing that one on Halloween. You know, thank you. It scared me here. Uh, This is scary. It's a scary question. The question number five is the relationship question. Now, the interesting thing about the relationship question we need to kind of consider is that this relationship question, if we ask it, has the power to heal relationships. It has the power to restore relationships, but there's no guarantee that it will. There's no guarantee. In fact, the first four questions have a high, what I would call an ROI. Any financial people in here know what I'm talking about? ROI. ROI is a return on investment. You ask those first four questions and immediately you're going to get kind of a change. And you can see and it's tangible. This next question is not so tangible. It's harder to measure. It's, it's not, it, and so there's no, no guarantee that if you ask this question that it will make your life better because this question is not about you, it's about others. It's about making other people's life better. This question really comes from what Jesus said in John chapter 13. And what Jesus says in John chapter 13, uh, give you a little context here, it's an emotional moment. Jesus has gathered his disciples together, and it's, it's such a powerfully emotional moment. And I'll explain in a little bit why it was so emotional. But emotions were high. Thing, I mean, it was just it was a, a beautiful moment. And at the end of that moment, Jesus utters these words that you've probably heard before if you've been to church more than five minutes. But it's one of these words I think we pass by too easily. And this is what Jesus said. So beautiful, so powerful. He said this, as he gathers his disciples together, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. Now, first of all, correction, Jesus, that's not really a new command, right? In the Old Testament, we see this, this thought of loving one another. I mean, it was kind of a part of the ethic in Judaism. So was it new? But it is. 
because Jesus defines love for us. You see, it's easy for you to say, well, love one another, but we all have a different measure of what that means for me to love one another, right? Jesus now clarifies what he means for you and I to love one another when he says, as I have loved you. Jesus clarifies and defines that love is not what you think it should be on how you should treat others. To be like, well, my way of loving one another is I'm not going to be mean to you if I, if I just don't. If I ignore you, that's love, right? If, if I don't talk to you, that's love. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm defining for you how you should measure that love. I want you to love one another, but not with your measure of what you think they deserve or what, they, what you think they need. I want you to love them as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This idea of loving others on how Jesus has loved us. And for the disciples, the, the cross hasn't happened yet. So in their minds, all they're seeing is that how Jesus treated them, how Jesus picked them up, how, how Jesus didn't belittle them, but brought correction to them. And so all these things is how Jesus loved them. In fact, just a few moments, he really showed them how he loves them. And he says this, by everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Everyone will know. He's basically saying in this moment, the number one marker, the number one identifier of being a Christian is not even that that you know a whole lot about the Bible. It's not even that you believe all these things or, or, or prayerfully consider all these things. He says the number one marker of being a Christian is what? Loving one another. Now, I got to tell you, that simplifies it, but it makes it a whole lot harder. Because there's some people, <laughs> there's very delightful people in here right now, I want to say. A lot of you are easy to love. Now, there's a few of you in here. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> But we all know that person, that's not easy to love. And we call those EGRs, extra grace required people. You know what I mean? We all have those in our extra love required. Not easy to love. And Jesus says, yeah, it's those people I want you to love. But not just by the way you think you should love them. How I have loved you, I want you to love them. So now this becomes the filter for decisions. This enters in the question of, the relationship question is simply is this. When we consider finances, when we consider our career, when we consider relationships, everything filter with this decision. Question number five. What does love require of me? It becomes this signpost. It becomes this guide. It helps us navigate the complexities of life when we're able to ask this question, when we think about these decisions that we're faced with, we're then faced with this final question, the most terrifying one of them all. What does love require of me? This has the potential to inform how we date, how informs how we parent, how informs how we manage people. This, this has such the effect that it affects our roles as a spouse. It affects our roles as a coworker. It affects our roles as a neighbor. It's so clarifying. What does love require of me? Jesus was right. A new command. It was a new command. To love one another 
with a measure as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By everyone will know that you are my disciples. Everybody will know. Because the signpost will be the way you love one another. Now, now this is a verse, and, and you've probably heard this verse before if you've been to church a little, in, you know, a couple, couple of weeks or so. You've heard this verse, but maybe you don't realize the context of this verse. And that's what I love about bringing and, and talking about the Bible is the context of the Bible. These words aren't just hollow teachings given by Jesus. Jesus exemplified these words just moments earlier. You see, John chapter 13, Jesus gathers his disciples. And again, this is like, this is Passion Week. You know, John chapter 13 is Passion Week. It's Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And as he's entering into Jerusalem, there's a lot of people with palm branches. And they're waving those palm branches. That's charismatic for you, right? That's happening. They're waving palm branches. And they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're welcoming. They're excited. And could you imagine being a disciple as Jesus is going into Jerusalem and crowds of people are waving palm branches, you're sitting there. you got to strut is what you got as a disciple. You're thinking, we're on the winning team. I mean, this is awesome. Jesus is walking in Jerusalem. What a display of love and admiration for Jesus. Things are great. And so he gathers the disciples to have a Passover meal. And as he's gathered his disciples, it says in verse John chapter 13, verse 1, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew, and see, here's the thing. John is writing this, and John is a disciple of Jesus. He was there. So you and I get to be a fly on the wall in this powerful moment of why Jesus said we should love one another. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave. Again, John's writing this you know, post-resurrection, post-everything. So he sees all this in perspective. At the time, probably didn't fully notice, but now he looks back and he says, yeah, it makes sense. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So he knew his time was coming. He knew there was a cross waiting for him. He knew everything was happening. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus puts on this display of love. Verse 2, it says this, the, the evening meal was in progress. And so this is kind of how uh, a situation would be. Uh, there would be typically a, a really low table uh, in the first century. And so you, would, you wouldn't sit in a chair to eat. You would lean in and eat. Could you imagine laying down while you eat? That sounds amazing, by the way. We should go back to that. So you could just take a nap and be like, oh, here, let's me eat some more. You know, I mean, just that sounds amazing. But you would lean in on your left elbow. And so everybody would kind of lean in and then they would eat with the right. And so everybody, and so you have all these people kind of hovered around the, the table where it'd be square, be round. I don't, I don't know, but it, however it was, but they would all be leaning in. So you definitely have at least 12 at this table and the meal is in progress and then it says, and again, John has insight afterwards because he sees all this playing out. So he says, in the evening meal, in the progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So if you don't know the story that he, Jesus is betrayed by one of his 12 disciples. And so Judas is there, 
And this, the things were already in motion. He's already talked to the, the uh, Pharisees. He's already talked to the temple guards. Jesus was going to be arrested that night, and things were already in motion. And guess who was there to also eat with Jesus? Judas. So it makes you wonder sometimes if you've ever been betrayed, if you've ever been just betrayed by someone, and it's easy at the end of that to say, well, I'll never have another friend, you know. I'll never, but even for someone like Jesus, as powerful as Jesus, Jesus was also betrayed. It's interesting. So verse 3, Jesus knew, this is, this is really awesome. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things. Can we say those two words together? All things under his power. And he had come from God and he was returning to God. So John in that moment is just saying, hey, just to let you know, Jesus is the most important person in the room. He's the most powerful person in the room. He is the most honored person in the room. And he's sitting there probably sitting at the place of most honor at the supper. But Jesus, knowing he has all authority and all power given to him by God, he does this with his power. Verse 4. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist, which everybody in the room would, would have like gasped, like, <gasps> what's going on? No one's gasping here because they're, they're like, well, he's just kind of changing clothes. What's, what's the big deal here? Well, this, this was a big deal in the first century because in the first century, your status, you couldn't really tell because no one's rolling up in a Rolls Royce, you know, I mean, they didn't have that, right? So you don't know your status, but you knew your status based on your clothes. Your, your wealth was literally oftentimes sewn in to your clothes. They would literally put their money sometimes sewn in to their clothes. So the kind of clothes it was, the, the color of the clothes would put you on a status of I'm important, I'm not important. Uh, and, and so Jesus takes off his outer clothing as to say I'm removing my status and he puts on the status of a servant. He wraps a towel around his waist. He does something that's unthinkable in the first century. Verse 5. After that, he poured water into a basin and began, get this, to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So th this was really out of sorts. Because you don't wash people's feet necessarily during the meal. You would do that before the meal. You would do that as they're entering into the house. But Jesus decides to take off his outer garments, put on the kind of robes of a servant, and begin to wash his disciples' feet. He's putting himself not to say, I'm just servant. He's saying, I'm going to serve you. And the most honored person in the room, the most powerful person in the room, is now put himself in the lowliest of positions in the room. And again, everyone's leaning, eating their appetizers, you know. Their feet are kicked out, and Jesus is going one by one, washing their feet. Now, you, I don't have to explain to you the yuckiness of first century feet, I mean, I don't like your feet now, you know. I, it's 21st century. So just use your imagination. 
This was not a fun activity. People would be like, oh, yeah, feet, feet washing. I think in the church sometimes, if you've been in church before and you've seen people wash feet, it's, it's very beautiful. It's moving, but it, not the real picture. I mean, this was gross. And so he's washing their feet. And you know who else's feet he's washing? Judas, yeah. Now, this blows my mind. Because I don't mind serving someone that loves me back. But you want me to wash the feet of someone that betrayed me? This is where I have a hard time fully understanding Jesus. Because it's hard to compute because the He's washing the very feet of the man who's betraying him. The very feet of the man that he provides for him, friendship. He provides so much for him, teaching, love, guidance. And he's washing his feet, and he's washing it with hands that will soon be pierced for Judas' sin. He's washing it. And he's going through the line. And he's around the circle or whatever. He's washing their feet, and he comes to Peter. And I love this about Peter because Peter says what you and I were thinking but don't have the guts to say. And I think Peter was like the last disciple to be, I don't know why I believe that, but he wasn't the, obviously wasn't the first, but I think he's the last one to be his foot washed because this is what happens. Verse six, it says, he came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Which I'm like, Duh, no, Peter, you're the only disciple. I'm not going to wash your feet. You're number 12 here, and I'm washing your feet. And no, but, but Peter's saying this because he's, he's battling with something. Verse 7, Jesus replied, look, Peter, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you're going to understand. You know what he's saying? Because later they will understand that Jesus, what he was doing, Jesus was doing what loved required in the moment. Jesus is exemplifying. Jesus is leading by example what he is wanting them to later do. But Jesus is leading by example, so it's a little convicting for someone who is like, well, he's the most important person in the room and he's washing my feet. Why was I doing this? And this feels, have you ever had someone do something so kind for you? kind to you that you're like oh no 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 please I mean how many would say I'm terrible at receiving you're you're terrible at receiving gifts anybody yeah you're like no 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 don't don't give me that gift don't 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 give me those compliments there's something in us that wants to reject a loving thing and what does someone says no just take the stupid gift you know I mean I mean just I, I'm trying to compliment you and you we try to deflect because I think there's something going on inside of us that wants to reject such love you know, and I think there's something happening with Peter. Because Peter says, oh, 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 verse 8, no, said Peter. You shall never wash my feet. That seems a little righteous and indignant, doesn't it? Jesus answered, uh, slow down there, Turbo. Uh, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. So Peter then Almost makes the moment about himself in this next verse. This is, this is so good, you know. It, it almost, instead of allowing Jesus to do this amazing moment with him, you know, and this expression of love, this expression of servanthood, he says this, verse, verse 9, Then, Lord, 
not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. I mean, come on, man. I mean, brother's doubling down here. And, and so I, I love what Jesus says. And I don't know if you can capture the humor here. And I don't know if Jesus meant this to be funny. I find it hilarious. Verse 10, he, he says this. Those who have had a, had a bath need only to wash their feet. You know, so you smell fine, Peter, right? You're You're okay. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. And who is he talking about? Verse 11, we we, we get this perspective. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that that was why he said not every one of you was clean. Jesus already knew. So, verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them, do you understand what I've done for you? He said this in verse 13, so beautiful. He says, you call me teacher and Lord. So we all understand, Jesus is like, you understand that I am the most powerful person in the room. I'm the son of God. And rightfully so, for that is what I am. But verse 14, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, (laughs) you should wash one another's feet. So, guys, you didn't realize this. I was washing your feet because I wanted to explain to you what leadership looks like in the kingdom of God. I I, I don't know if you realize this, but this will be an object lesson for preachers for close to two, over 2,000 years. This is how, this is what you do when you are the most important person in the room, when you're the most powerful person in the room, you, by example, lead with this. And I love this because by example, Jesus called his disciples to now demonstrate their devotion to God. This is, so he's saying, this is how you do, uh, ex- demonstrate your devotion to God, is by putting the person next to them in front of them. He says, this is how I want you to do all that love and admiration you have for God, all that love and devotion that you have for God, I want you to take that and then put it to the person next to you, even if that person next to you is unlovable. Verse 15, he says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Verse 16, very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. In verse 17, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And then a few verses later, he says this, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. As he just washed his disciples' feet and there's perfume permeating from the the foot washings that now Jesus is saying the example I'm giving you this is how I want you to love one another and we'll fully demonstrate that hours from that moment by dying on a cross for the sins of humanity but the question for us is this what does love require what does love require now for some of us I think this this question kind of hits us on a couple of different levels. And maybe you're in a position of leadership. So I guess the question could be asked, well, what does love require as you lead? That maybe in your context, someone calls you boss. 
Someone calls you sir or ma'am. And the question is, are you, what does love require as you lead? Maybe it looks a lot like Jesus. By loaning your strength to those that have no strength. To treat others with respect in the office, even though you may not fully respect them. So what does love require when you lead? What, what does about love require as you date? Oh, yay, that sounds fun, right? What does love require as you date? This idea of respecting the person that you're dating, not leading them on, not using them for your own things, but to what does love require in that moment? A level of respect for that. That's what love requires as you date. What does love require as fa- fathers? What does love require? Dads, can I just talk to you just for a little bit? It's easy sometimes as a father because we don't fully, and I just say from personal experience, we don't know how to process emotions well. So the only emotion we know to, uh, are two emotions, happy and angry. That's the kind of the two, All you know, ladies, I don't know if this is something, but this is definitely a guy thing. It may also be you too, but happy and I'm angry. And it's easy as a dad sometimes to use that anger in in. And, and command the room with my volume, but what does love require of you? Do you really want to manipulate your family to have to walk on eggshells because you don't want to make dad mad? What does love require of you? And maybe it's not aggression for you, but maybe it's passive. Maybe your dad, you're like, well, I, I want the mom to raise the kids. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to either provide or do whatever or... or or send that check, or, or however it is, but fathers, what does love require? See, love requires of you to be actively involved in your kids. And, and love requires you to be involved and, and have a relationship with them, and not just be a paycheck that provides for them. Mothers, what does love require? Mothers, I, I know f- for some, maybe there's a tension there, because there is something in us, you know, something as mothers, and I, and I see this sometimes, where as a mother, that it's easy to slide from being a mother to being a friend of my kids. But what does love require to be that mom, to provide that guidance, to have those tough conversations with your kids that maybe they don't see you quite as now the friend, but now your mom, but love requires that you would lead and guide your kids. But maybe that's not you. Maybe it's easy for you to be hard on your kids. You're like, well, Justin, I got that down. We can, I'll get my, you know, shape up, kids. And maybe you're hard on your kids. What does love require you in that moment? And have, have you, if you're honest with yourself, could it be the fact that you're hard on your kids, not because you're just really concerned with your kids, but you just want them to be a reflection on you? And you're not worried about them being disciplined at home, but you just want to make sure they don't act up at Walmart. <laughs> and what does that teach your kids? Image management is what that teaches that kids. It doesn't matter how you act as long as you look fine in front of everybody. But what if love requires you to lead as a parent out of vulnerability? But I don't want to just talk to the parents. Teens, <laughs> what does love require? Well, I've got two teenage daughters, so I've got a long laundry list for you, but I, I, not, I won't. Could it be respect? 
Could it be the fact that we see our parents sometimes in an unhealthy way to where like we're just waiting for them to mess up and, and be like, hey, see, now I can do whatever I want. Or is the fact that parents are real people too that make a mistake? Can I get an amen from any parent in here? And that we will mess up and, and yes, we'll help pay for your therapy later in life if you need so. But that's fine. But we're struggling and trying to figure this thing out too because we're still trying to figure out our relationship with our parents and on and on and on. What is, teens, what does love require in that moment? Teens, what does love require the way you talk to your teachers, the way you talk to your police officers? Respect those in authority. I'll get off that. Okay, let's go on. Uh, what does love require in a marriage as a wife, as a husband? What does love require? And, and Paul tells us in Ephesians what love requires. He says, when you're married, it should be like a submission competition to where you try to outserve the other person. And, and it's like, and, and nothing gets done because you're so trying to put the other person in front of, well, where do you want to go eat? No, where, where do you want to go eat? Well, someone make up their mind, you know. It should be a, a, a submission competition. It's not about me domineering, and this is how you should lead. This is how you should love. What does love require in a marriage? This next one, y'all are going to really love. In an election year. (laughs) What does love require? We should respect even though we disagree. Differences are inevitable, but division is a choice. Violence is never the answer. So in a, few, in a few days, your side may win or lose, but how you respond afterwards says more about your faith than anything else. Don't you dare. Ter- to, uh, wait, 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 just a minute. Hey, let me. Thank you, but don't you dare tear up businesses and be violent on a community that you live in. Okay. Love requires taking the high road. Love, retire, love requires taking the high road. But love requires, maybe, what, what does love require me? Maybe it, it means forgive. Maybe it means to go into the, that room and apologize. What does love require me? Maybe it's to adjust your pace. Maybe your pace of life is outpacing all your friends and, and they're like, we would love to hang out sometime, but you're way beyond us. Or maybe for some, it, love requires me to reshuffle my values. You know what love requires of me? Think before you speak. Oh, that was not supposed to be up there. <laughs> that was personally for me, but maybe you could identify. Think before you speak. Or what does love require? Maybe to pick up the phone. Maybe to write the email. What does love require? And I know what you're thinking in this moment. You're like, well, that's fine, Justin. But what about the other party here? You're telling me to write the email. You're telling me to pick up the phone. You're telling me to do this, do that, and just be loving. But Justin, what if they don't take the phone call? What if they don't respond? And maybe they're even mad that it come to them and, 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 and respond. What, what, what then? And you're like, what about the other party? Why don't you preach to them about forgiveness? Why don't you preach to them? Well, they're not here. You are. But it's not about the other person. And, and here is where maturity really connects with spiritual maturity. And that is Jesus shows us 
to make the first move. And though it's never guaranteed what you do for that other in relationships, there's no guarantees. There's no guarantees that when you're loving, that that person will love you back. In, in relationship, there's no guarantees, but it's not about you with this question. It's about everyone else. What does love require of me? And there was a moment when you weren't interested in God, and yet God didn't wait on you, and he pursued you. God made the first move. And guess what? He asked his followers to do the same. And again, as you're thinking about all these questions and you're thinking about what does love require and you're still hung up, should I email, should I call? As you're processing that, you're like, how humanly possible can you do that with people that are difficult? And I would say this. Jesus gave us the secret. He says, Love one another as I have loved you. The more we embrace the love from our Savior, the more we understand the depth of his love for us, the more we are empowered to love those that are difficult, that may not even receive our love. And he showed that once and for all, the best way, by dying on a cross. And so I thought, why don't we spend time as we close today and close this entire series with participating in communion together. And so if you could get your communion packets out, John, if you could help me out, I forgot. Thanks. And if we could stand up at this time, uh, if, if you're looking, you're like, oh, I forgot, where, where do I get these little guys? They're in the, they're in the entrances, and so you can pick one up and Get one. And if you're sitting there going, if you're in this church and you're kind of new to this church and you're like, am I allowed to participate in communion? Can I tell you, we practice at this church what we call open communion. So this is open to anybody who says, I'm a follower of Jesus. And so you don't have to have a special membership or a special card to take communion. We can do this together as a family of God. And so that very moment in, in John chapter 13, after he washed their feet, Jesus did something amazing. He saw the bread, and he had the glass of wine, and he took the bread, and he lifted it up, and he made this example that the church has been practicing for thousands of years. And then he said, he lifted it up, he said, this is my body which is given for you. So every time you eat bread, remember what Jesus did for you. And this puts on a new layer for us because there's people in this community, there's people in your family that need that love that Jesus has loved you with for you to love them. And there's no other reason or ability to do that other than understanding that his body was broken for you. This is the extent of his love for you. So let's snap that wafer and let's lift it up and let's thank him for that. Jesus, we see the full extent of your love. We see that your body was broken and through the brokenness of your body, life and healing came to humanity. Let us never forget that by your wounds, we are healed. And so we celebrate that this morning 
In Jesus' name, let's take it together. And then he took the, the wine for our case, it's grape juice, and he lifted it up. And he says, this symbol, this is symbolizing a new covenant in my blood. So now when we go before the throne, God's throne, we can go with confidence, not because we're all the, that great people, because our sins are washed away by his blood. And now we can stand with confidence as we, and so we want to remember, as Jesus said, this is the new covenant. So we celebrate that new covenant this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, as we're here and we're thinking and processing through this idea of what does love require, God, you saw humanity needed a Savior. And Jesus, you became that Savior. And you died on a cross and your blood was spilled. A perfect sacrifice to cover the sins of humanity. And so what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So we celebrate that this morning. That we can stand forgiven because of what you did, Jesus. In Jesus' name, let's take it together. Father, as we conclude... As we process the changes that we may need to make, we do so understanding what you've done for us. Because no matter what our past says, no matter if we are uh, lived a life absent of love, Jesus, you loved us first. And so your love can heal us as we love others, sometimes that are not easy to love. May you bless these efforts and may this community be changed because this church is asking the question, what does love require of me? In Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. amen. We'll see you next week. Give three people a big high five.